1: and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to the show.
0: Today we have two elements that are going to combine to make a very interesting story. So my guest today, Bernie Swain, has had an interesting journey in his own life, getting out of the comfort zone, leaving a 16-year career and starting a new business in an area that he knows virtually nothing about and making a success of it. But it also turns out that the people he's met in this new business are quite impressive leaders in their own right. So the second part of the story is really hearing from the people that he has befriended along the way. So my guest, Bernie Swain, as I said, quit his job and started a lecture agency with his wife and best friend, Harry Rhodes. And today, the Washington Speakers Bureau is the largest and most prestigious, we would argue, of the speakers' bureaus in the world. So Bernie has represented three of the last four presidents, six secretaries of state, the last five UK prime ministers, numerous world leaders, sports figures, business executives, media personalities, and public uh, figures in general. Thirty-four of those folks have become particular friends of Bernie's along the way, and his book, who made me what I am, are the stories from those 34 friends and world leaders and their lessons about leadership. So I want to talk both about Bernie's choice to be an entrepreneur and get out of the comfort zone and also what he's learned from the people that he's represented. So Bernie, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Uh, this is great being on.
0: I'm looking forward to it. Okay, I can't resist the entrepreneurial story first. Okay, so you have a 16-year career. Presumably, you're doing really well in that career, and you decided to leave and start a business in as a speaker bureau, and you knew nothing about the business. Right.
2: So I was uh, I was one of those kids when they were 16 years old who knew exactly what I wanted to do. At least I thought I did, and I devoted 16 years to it. I had a mentor in high school who was the athletic director and the football coach at the at the high school. No one in my family had ever attended college before. Uh, my mother and her family were farmers in central Virginia and lived off the land. Uh, my father and his family grew up with five sisters, uh, brother, uh, mother, assorted relatives in a two room house in the poorest of mining towns in West Virginia, and when. My grandmother, his mother, couldn't take care of him. My father spent much of his childhood in an orphanage. And so no one in my family ever attended college. And so this mentor, this teacher, when I was in high school, encouraged me to go to college. In fact, he inspired me. And I wanted to be just like him, so I got a degree in education, became a public school teacher and a football coach on my own right, I went back to the university to get a master's degree and became the assistant athletic director at the university. And then five years after becoming the assistant athletic director, my boss announced his retirement and I was offered the job. At that point, I turned down the job and walked away from what was a dream job and something I had devoted 16 years of my life to. Uh, This friend, our partner, sent me a copy uh, of Fortune Magazine. And in Fortune Magazine was an article about the Harry Walker agency located in New York City. At the time, they were the largest lecture agency in the world. In the article, Harry Walker walks into the Ford White House and he picks up Henry Kissinger, Alexander Haig, who was Secretary of State, and Gerald Ford himself as clients. Near the end of the article... Henry Kissinger is quoted by the author as questioning the high interest rate that Harry Walker wants to charge and says, why don't I sign with one of your competitors? And Harry Walker says, I have no competitors. So I took the magazine home, and I happened to leave it on the coffee table, and a few days later, I came home, and my wife said, have you read this article? And I said, I had, and she says, you know, he has no competitors. You've got to realize, back in, this was 1980 with no Internet, so you take what you read in a magazine almost as gospel, and she sat me down and she said, you know, you come home, despite loving this job, and complain about the bureaucracy of university life, and I don't think you'll ever be happy unless you can make decisions on your own. And so she pushed and she prodded me for weeks, and she convinced me to quit my job, in my career, and along with her, she quit her job, and we started the Speakers Bureau.
0: I cannot imagine the discussions over the dinner table that got you to the point and then how, how it went afterwards. Okay, so you both quit your jobs. And what made you convinced that you could do this?
2: Well, my wife convinced me we could do it. Um, we, had, we had no plan we had no experience uh, in the industry other than what we had read in this article. We had, in fact, no money. Uh, I was making thirty-three thousand dollars as assistant athletic director. I would have made a lot more as the athletic director. My wife was only making eleven thousand. We had no savings, uh, so so we put a second mortgage on our home. And that, we had a sixty-thousand-dollar house. And now we had two mortgages of $55,000 on that $60,000 house at 12% interest rate in 1980s. We had no money to get an office, so a friend of ours, Chuck Hagel, who later would become the Secretary of Defense in the United States, rented us his uh, stationary closet. And that's how we started our company, with no plan or no experience. (laughs)
0: Rented a stationary closet. Now, is this a spacious one, or are we talking about, you know, your average closet with supplies stuffed in it?
2: It was supplies stuffed in it. They would come in, his office would come in and get their supplies when they needed, and uh, it was about an 8 by 10 foot stationary closet, and there were three of us in the closet uh, sharing two small (laughs) school desks. And when we needed to leave the stationary closet, you had to walk through Chuck's office, so... If Chuck was having a meeting, we'd have to sit in our closet and wait for Chuck's meeting to be over in order to walk through the office and out the building. Uh, we, to start a Speaker's Bureau in 1980 with no internet and no idea what we were doing, we would sit in the closet and we would think of famous names and we would try to find an office number and none of our phone calls were returned. We would write letters to them, and we would get letters back from lawyers saying, my client, this famous person, is represented by an agency. Do not write them again, or we will sue you. Uh, This is how we found out, not not having an Internet, that there were five or six large agencies in addition to Harry Walker. So we sat in that closet for 12 months, and nothing had changed. Uh, we Harry Walker still controlled the industry. There were five or six other large speakers bureaus that represented a host of famous names, and we were still in our closet. The only thing that really had changed is we were about out of the money we had put on a second mortgage.
0: All right. So what happened? I mean, how did you sustain your momentum, your courage, to keep going for those first 12 months? Because, you know, getting rejection after rejection has got to feel pretty bad about six months in.
2: You know, I look back at that and I'm totally surprised at at how I felt. Almost every day, in fact, was a failure. I mean, you would come home at 6 or 7 o'clock at night and and you felt like it was not just another lost day and you didn't think you were going to get anywhere But the next morning you woke up and you were excited about the new day. It was something about having a passion for doing something on my own. I think when you start a company on your own, the most important thing for you is a passion. Uh, I, I know on your show you have a lot of people who are experts and they want to start a company in that field because they know about that field. I'm just the opposite. I started a, a company, an entrepreneurial company, with no knowledge of what I was doing, but I had a passion to somehow make this work. You know, I had a belief, my wife had a belief in me, she was there supporting me, and together we were convinced that one day we would be able to, uh, to overcome the failures uh, that we were experiencing every day.
0: Okay. So you get a break. It's 12 months in, nothing's happened, you're about out of money. Tell us about the break.
2: We got, um, I got a call from a guy named Steve Bell, and there was a new show on, on ABC called Good Morning America, and Steve was the anchor for it. He had been represented by one of those other agencies. They hadn't delivered, and the standard protocol for representing somebody is you sign them to one- or two-year written contracts, and that way you have them locked up. And so Steve had just ended that two-year contract and they hadn't produced for him and and he knew, he had heard we were trying to start a Speaker's Bureau. I had known Steve when I was at the university because I helped him uh, do a program for ABC. And so Steve says, I'll give you guys a chance. So I shook Steve's hand and reached an agreement to represent him and I then had to justify to my wife and Harry Rhodes, our partner, why I didn't sign him to a two-year contract. It was a mistake. I had just simply was too excited to think about writing a contract. We had never even con- considered, you know, putting a contract down because we hadn't even gotten close to talking to somebody. And so I justified the decision I made by saying, well, what good is it going to do to hold him to a piece of paper if he's unhappy? Well, that mistake on my part turned out to be a defining moment for us because Steve went back to his job, and when he would talk to other journalists, he would say, you know, there's this new little Speakers Bureau in Washington, D.C., and if you don't want to sign two-year contracts with other agencies, you can shake their hand and you can walk away from them anytime you want. And suddenly... We became very popular, and we suddenly represented five or six well-known journalists.
0: Wow. On a mistake.
2: A mistake that turned out to be a defining moment. And (laughs) that is part of, you know, what I wrote about is that somehow we face, you know, uh, turning points in our lives, things that change the direction, the forks in the road.
0: Yeah. And we're going to come to more of those as well. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. So you get the one, and then somewhere along the way, you had to learn how to run a speaker's bureau. Or did you? Uh, Tell us about the journey to learn the business.
2: You did. I mean, if I had any talent whatsoever, it was I liked people. So it was a natural fit for me. I probably didn't realize it. Um, But you learn things along the way that, you know, that, I had no idea, for example, that you know that most lecture agencies represent people exclusively, so that gives them their identity. You know I've represented now three of the last four presidents and prime ministers, and that gives me my identity and and so uh I didn't realize that at the time and so uh that is one of the th- things I learned. I also learned that how important networking was. Washington, D.C. is that kind of town where everybody talks. It's a gossiping kind of town. And so uh, I had, by signing Steve to a handshake, what I inadvertently did was establish an aura of honesty and trust. Uh, the, pe- the three of us knew that we had to produce for the people we represented, in turn, uh they knew that we were going to work hard for them. And so as we started to grow and we started to hire people, the idea that we represented people on a handshake uh permeated throughout the company, knowing that, you know, I can trust you as an employee, you uh, as an employee can trust me as the leader of the company. We trust the speakers we we represent and in turn they trust us. And In all the years, I've been doing this for 36 years, and for 36 years, I've never signed a written contract. It's all been on a handshake because I learned the incredible value of trust and honesty.
0: That's incredible. You know, uh, there's a lot of discussion that's been going on around culture and about creating the culture and the... T- environment and so on. And it, it just strikes me how that one simple choice then just ultimately defines everybody that works with you, both inside the agency and outside the agency. It's powerful. It's incredibly powerful. Okay, so there's a, we're back in a love affair with entrepreneurial businesses. So if I look at the millennial generation, my son and a lot of his friends, a lot of the senior executives that I talk to as well say, you know, I'm not sure I want to keep doing this job forever. I don't like to run my own business. There is an interest in it again, and it seems like it's the ideal dream job. So what's your view and your advice about being an entrepreneur?
2: It is the most exciting dream job you could possibly have. It provides you with the highest, greatest highs and sometimes the deepest lows but for some reason, because you're making decisions on your own and you're trying to overcome failure or, or adversity, you feel in control. Um, I think the first question you ask if you want to become an entrepreneur, if you want to do this on your own, do you want to work 80 hours for yourself as opposed to working 40 hours for someone else? That's the first question you got to ask yourself, and if you answer the Question yes, then you have the chance to make it work. Uh, I think you need to do something you like and know now that seems unusual for me to say because I entered something that i an industry I knew nothing about, but I did have an interest in people and 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 it is turned out to be a very much a people oriented industry, so I think you do have to have a knowledge for what you do. I think it's great to be an expert, as I said before you if you if you have a talent or an expertise in something, it doesn't do you enough good in in the realm of being an entrepreneur unless you have a passion for do it, for doing, for doing something and, and achieving it. Because you know, every day you're going to. We all experience failure. We all experience misfortune. It's part of life, uh, and you have to understand that. There are going to be days when you have to overcome that adversity and that it's part of what everybody experiences in life. You have to embrace change. You know, we always say about change, you know, yes, I'm absolutely in favor of change, except when it comes to us, and then we just don't want to change. But to be a good entrepreneur, you have to be flexible and have the ability to change. Uh, So I I think the things that being an expert or liking what you're doing, um, being willing to change and uh, being, having a good attitude and a positive attitude in order to understand that adversity, failure, and misfortune are part of the experience.
0: Right. I often say, um, so I run my own business as well, and I often say that the only way to succeed in this business is to get comfortable with the ebbs and flows that come. Because there are great times. It's like feast or famine. It's either working really, really well or Mm -hmm. it's in a low point and you start to panic about it. So I think you're right that it is that attitude that says I keep going at it regardless what it is. Right? I don't
2: think you, you, you can't, you can't, you don't, you simply don't give up. I mean, you you sit there, you spend, you literally spend eight hour, 80 hours or more a week. I mean, you you wake up at two o'clock in the morning and that's what you're thinking about. And, and uh, over a problem, you're getting up and writing something down, um, you know, and, and we often don't do that when we work for somebody else because we figure it's something else is going to, somebody else is going to take care of the problem and being an entrepreneur, you're the only one that's there to take care of that problem.
0: Okay. All right. Fair enough. So passion, commitment, drive, um, a positive attitude, a willingness to deal with the failures, to overcome the failures and keep going, and a willingness to dedicate hours upon hours upon hours more than you would do in a day job. Great. Okay?
2: It is. Yep.
0: Absolutely fabulous. All right. So we're going to take a break at this point. And with me today is Bernie Swain. Bernie is the head of the Washington Speakers Bureau. And as you've just heard in the story, he left a 16 year career with his dream job on the table, the thing he'd been preparing for for entire college and post college life left that to start a business that he knew absolutely nothing about. I think that is fabulous. I love it. Talk about it out of the comfort zone. And then to fight through the adversity and experience and 12 months of people saying no, 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 no. And if you call us again, you're going to get a letter from our lawyer to finally get a breakthrough. And then the other thing I love about this story, Bernie, is this notion that a mistake instead of signing the contract, you did a handshake becomes the defining moment that sets the culture of the company and actually puts your name on the map. So that's excellent. When we come back, I want to talk about the people that Bernie has represented in the Washington Speakers Bureau. So people like Madeleine Albright Dave Barry, Condoleezza Rice, Tom Brokaw, Colin Powell, Tony Blair, and a whole host of other people that had become his friends. And in particular, we want to talk about some of the examples of their defining moments or their points of courage that have changed the course of their life. So that'll be our discussion when we come back.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it.
2: Every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the
1: boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
0: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Bernie Swain, and Bernie is the head of the Washington Speakers Bureau. One of the world's largest speakers agencies that has represented an incredible number of people. Three out of the four last presidents, six secretaries of state, five of the last prime ministers in the UK, a number of sports figures, business leaders, world leaders, media figures, and so forth. Now Bernie's written a lovely book called Who Made Me Who I Am or What Made Me Who I Am. Let me get the title correct. And it is about 34 of the people that he has met in the Washington Speakers Bureau and some of their defining moments, some of the key points for Bernie and some of the impact they've had on him, as well as the turning point in their career. So, Bernie, I want to hear about these stories. So tell us about one of your favorite people and what did you learn from them?
2: Great. Um, I kind of bring you up to date. After we signed Steve Bell, for the next six or seven years, we kind of uh, grew moderately. Uh, by the time 1988 came along, we were, um, you know, maybe sixth or seventh uh, in, in size of the speaker's bureaus. We People knew who we were. We had a great reputation. We were one of 30 different agencies, including Hollywood agencies, that were invited to interview to represent Ronald Reagan. And the idea behind the interviews was that you we would take those 30 and in the first interview eliminate 15 of them and then hold another interview and eliminate down to six or seven. And then the staff would recommend the top two choices uh, to Mrs. Reagan and Ronald Reagan and they would make the selection. We We got invited back to three meetings, but you really didn't know what was going on, so... Uh, after our last meeting, two months goes by when absolutely no one hears anything. Uh, no one in Washington really thought we were going to be selected by Ronald Reagan. Um, but strangely, you have that an optimism when you when you're doing something on your own that you can accomplish almost anything. So whether we whether it was a, a real optimism or whether we thought really it was going to come true, we did feel good about what we had done. Sometime in February, I get a call from uh, Ronald Reagan's chief of staff, Fred Ryan, who is now publisher of the Washington Post, and I kind of braced myself because I thought well, he's going to say you guys did a really good job and uh, and you didn't come in, but you, you certainly represented yourself well. You didn't get Ronald Reagan, but we want to thank you. So I would brace myself for the bad news, and I answer the phone, and he says, President and Mrs. Reagan, have selected you to represent them. I was, quite frankly, so flustered that, you know, that I simply said, thank you and, and you know, appreciate it. We're going to do a good job for you, and I hung up the phone. I'm relatively superstitious, so I said to Paula and our partner, Harry, I said, let's not really say anything to anybody because it could be a mistake. They could call back and say, you know, actually, we dialed the wrong number, and we're just, we're sorry, but the next morning, we got another call confirming the details. And um, and as I said, I'm superstitious, so I, I never really asked how that all happened. But months went by, and, and Fred Ryan was in our office. And I said, Fred, actually, how did we get selected to represent Ronald Reagan? He said, well, actually, you came in second. You weren't the first choice of the staff, but the president himself chose you to represent him because he saw that you were – an entrepreneurial company, three people starting out trying to make something in life, and he wanted to give you a chance. And for me, it was totally amazing. I remember sitting at my desk that day and 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 trying to comprehend what had just taken place, even though we had represented him for months. And I finally came to the realization that Ronald Reagan was, at heart, a small-town boy who believed in entrepreneurism and the little guy, And like the people whose stories that I wrote in the book, he was guided by his influences and defining moments that formed and shaped his life. And it taught me, and and the amazing thing about that was that, can you imagine a president of the United States or a prime minister of Great Britain trusting their legacy to three unknown, inexperienced people who could ruin those eight years of his legacy by making mistakes and not tr- going with the larger agency that was obviously would have been more established and professional and what it taught me was that when you believe in something when you have a conviction no matter how much you risk yourself for that conviction you stay true to your beliefs and so that was one of the lessons i learned in life you know and one of the people I represented along the line was Alex Haley. He was one of the ones earlier before Ronald Reagan that we signed by a handshake. And Alex used to come and sit in my office for hours, and he would talk about family and relationships. And he used to repeat to me a phrase called, when, when an old person dies, it's like a library burning. And I didn't quite get it until i finally realized what he was trying to say to me was that the experiences in our lives are like the pages in a book and those experiences are the turning points in our lives they're the powerful influences and the defining moments that give us character and and so that was the reason i wrote the book and i i decided to i knew i got to thanks to alex haley got to know make an effort to pay attention to the people I represented, not just professionally, but get to know them on a personal level, to separate the politics from the personal person. And so I learned that many of them came actually from humble and modest beginnings, uh, much like I did, and that the way that they succeeded in life was much the way that you and I can succeed in life. We're not all going to be prime ministers or presidents or secretaries of state, but we can all be successful and accomplished. And so that's what I tried to do with the book. And so what I've done is separate what they did in office from their personal life and to talk about the turning points, the things that made a difference to them, with the idea that depending on who you are, if you're an older reader, that you can look back on life and see yourself in many of these stories, and if you're somebody younger, a millennial, you can look at these stories and understand the importance of the turning points in your lives and learning from them at an early age.
0: Wow. Um, There's a lot in that one. I want to come back to a couple of points that you said, that many of the people you met came from humble and modest beginnings. There's um, Howard Gardner a number of years ago, a lot of years ago, actually did an analysis of the biographies of 10 famous world leaders to look for qualities that made them successful. And uh, as I read that book, my conclusion at the end of it was that the only thing that made them that they had in common was that they all came from modest beginnings So do you think there is something about this modest beginning that makes us strive more? It makes us a different character. I mean, is that part of the defining moments for people?
2: I think that's what gives us our character. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, I came up from a family who had never gone, no one had ever gone to college. My mother's side were farmers. My father lived in an orphanage. I realized, and they were good people with good character. And, it, whether you whether you realize it or not your family and who they are teaches you a lesson you learn from their experiences you 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 see and realize what they overcame in the process and and i think it teaches you you know maybe that's where i got my passion from maybe that's the sole reason i walked away from a career that i would have been very happy in was that you know that some that they represented in a way that, that was humble and modest beginnings. The idea that you can overcome adversity, and in overcoming adversity, isn't that the essence of entrepreneurism? Isn't, isn't that what entrepreneurism is all about? The idea that you can overcome difficult times and you can do something on your own, and no matter what the obstacles that are thrown in your way, you can overcome them.
0: Okay. I love that one. Okay, so I, fascinated by these stories, give us another example of one of your favorite people and the kind of defining moment in their life.
2: Well, I represent—I represent people that are on the right. I represent people on the left. I represented the former Secretary of Labor, who is now probably in the United States. I mean, considering what's going on in the United States at the time, he is the foremost. Authority, an advocate for economic equality, which is a big okay. issue in the United States. I think it's probably a big issue everywhere now. His name is Robert Reich, and Robert Reich is 4 foot 11 inches tall. He was bullied from the time he was in the kindergarten, and in order to protect himself, he created a coping mechanism in which he would get an older boy. A larger boy to walk with him in school and in the neighborhood, and just by the sheer presence of that older boy, he, the bullies would back off. One of the bullies, one of the people that protected him, was at his grandmother's house in the Adirondack Mountains that are located in New York, New York State, and the guy's name was Mickey Schwerner, and Mickey wanted to become a veterinarian, and. Rob, Bob Reich lost track of him after he went off to college, and Mickey ended up transferring from a Veterinarian to Social Justice at Columbia University and went down to Mississippi in the middle of the Civil War riots in the 1960s in the United States. He, along with two others, were killed by a sheriff and the deputies of, of a local uh, town and their bodies were not found for several months. Um, Robert Reich's father was a Republican. His mother was a Democrat. The issues of the day never, bu- never entered his life. He had no interest in getting involved in politics, and he learned of Mickey Schwerner's death, and it had an enormous impact on his life. Here was a boy who protected him, who... Changed Robert Reich's life to give him the idea that in turn he had an obligation to live up to Mickey Schroener's reputation and protect others. So he ran for sophomore, junior, uh, and, uh, and pres- uh, senior class presidents at the university and, and won every time. He worked for Robert Kennedy, he became Secretary of Labor. And now he is the foremost advocate for economic justice in the United States simply because somebody protected him and he feels an obligation to protect others.
0: Wow. That is an incredibly powerful story. I can imagine. uh, Yeah, go ahead.
2: No, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
0: That's all right. You can interrupt me at any point. Just, and I can see what you mean by this notion of the defining moments in people's careers where an event happens. There's a sequence, there's a pattern, and then an event happened, and that becomes a defining moment that in effect makes you who you are or sets the course of your life in a different direction. I can only imagine, Bernie, what it must have been like for you to meet all of these phenomenal people and more importantly, to take the time to hear these stories and to hear the defining moments, not just to see the person in their last, their glory at that moment in time, I guess I should say.
2: Well, my, the, the biggest argument in my family was always like, we're in Washington, D.C., well, why aren't we going to cocktail parties? Why aren't we going to events in Washington, D.C.? And I always felt an obligation to represent these people and, and not... Not try to be something that I, that I wasn't. Uh, you know, you learn lessons. I I represent. I've represented hundreds of people, and each one of them, like my brothers and sisters or my children, have taught me something. And um, and, and 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 paying attention to that has created me to be the person I am today, uh, because I learn a little bit from each one of them, or sometimes I learn a lot from. One of them, uh, learning from Ronald Reagan or learning from Alex Haley. So, you know, the the thing I got out of this was not the success of building a company with 100 employees and 150 million dollar annual um, income. It, it, my what I got out of this was that people I met, and, and uh, you know each of them represented like a library for me. It was, and that library is stuffed to the rafters with knowledge because of the people I represented. And it wasn't all famous people. I represented a, a young lady who, um, whose parents were drug-addicted uh, parents and uh, who were very bright parents. One was a professor, but they couldn't break the addiction. And her sister; neither one of them could live in the house any longer. It, it, they didn't. The money was being spent not on food or clothing or rent. They were, uh, but it was being spent on the drugs. So her name was Liz Murray, and she eventually went out and lived on the streets of New York City and rode the subway up and down, uh, and that was her life for two years. She was out of high school. She was sixteen years old. And at one point, she got this what-if moment in her life. You know, what if I didn't have to ride the subways? What if I didn't have to live on the street? What if I could get myself an apartment? What if I could live with my sister and find a job? So she made an effort to go back to high school, and nobody would take her back to high school. And she had one last appointment with this high school that was kind of a... Uh, charter school for for kids who had dropped out, and she had just enough money to decide I can go get pizza and hang out with my buddies or I can take the subway up to this last meeting. I failed all the other meetings, so what am I going to do? And that what-if moment stuck in her head, and she went up there, and she got accepted at the school, a uh, school which pressured her. Another mentor, like the high mentor I had, pressured her, into doing well, and she ended up graduating from Harvard. And what a tremendous turning point from the fact that, you know, we all see people who are homeless and on the streets, and the ability to, you think, can you ever turn your life around from that? And there's an enormous example of somebody who turned their life around.
0: Wow. Let's talk about the fortitude, the character, the courage um, the determination to go from that circumstance into something different than that. Mm -hmm. So are there, my last question on this one, and then we're going to take a break again, is there, are there, you've said that the common themes are about overcoming adversity, about, um, starting from humble backgrounds and everybody has a defining moment. Are there any other themes from all of these people that you've met that are worth mentioning?
2: Well, uh, strangely, because of, you know, the decision to shake their hands, honesty was a huge thing for us. Uh, I've found in each one of them uh, a number of things. One is that they they are all, they all have the ability to evaluate their strengths and weaknesses, and, you know, they all know what they're good at and they all know what they need help with, um, and, and and they all um they all know what they're talking about. Uh, learning for leaders, learning is really what leaders do, and so they they know what they're talking about, and they develop from that knowledge a vision and a goal in order to you know to um, to be a good leader. And with that comes the ability to communicate with other people. I mean, they're all. I've often asked, you know, did you ever teach people how to speak? And the fact that these people are great leaders, they all came with the ability to communicate well and share that vision and the goals that they had in life. So they taught me a lot about uh, about leadership. Um, you know, they made my job easier because they were there and I could emulate what they were doing and I could learn from not only my mistakes, but learn from their mistakes as well. Great.
0: That is a perfect segue to make take a break here again. So, reminder, Bernie Swain is my guest today. The book that he has written, which is about all these defining moments and points of courage, is called What Made Me Who I Am. And it's stories from 34 people that he has represented in the Washington Speakers Bureau who have amazing stories in their own right and their defining moments, what has made them who they are. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to turn to the last thing that Bernie just mentioned, which is what is it that he's learned about leadership? That we can all use as lessons in our life. And I know that Bernie's going to start by saying leadership is everything. So join us after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc. Helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to the Business Edge with Marsha Zidle. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Bernie Swain, and Bernie is um, one of the founding partners of the Washington Speakers Bureau, which has represented an incredible number of people. As I've said already, three out of the last four presidents, five of the last prime ministers in the UK, six secretaries of state, and the list goes on incredibly. We've just been talking about the people that Bernie has met through the founding of the Washington Speakers Bureau and the last many years of running it people he's gotten to know as friends, and people who have described to him their turning points, their defining moments in their lives that have made them who they are as people. And the book he's written about these folks are What Made Me Who I Am, so 34 stories. We're just hearing a couple of lovely stories, Ronald Reagan, Alex Haley, and Liz Murray, fascinating stories. So now, Bernie, I want to turn to this lovely topic, this all-encompassing topic of leadership, You've met some amazing leaders. Out of what you've learned from them, what can you tell us about what makes for great leadership?
2: Well, it's interesting because when one of the things, we were talking earlier about, you know, what I had learned how to run a Speakers Bureau, and um, one of the things that I didn't realize the importance of was leadership. Um, you know, my wife sat me down and she says, you know, you you." are never going to be happy unless you can make decisions on your own and so it's easy to think well gee now I'm going to start something and I'm going to be able to make the decisions and people are going to be able to follow me and do exactly as I say to do and I think I would have never changed the job. Paula would have never been able to say to me you know you're not going to be happy unless you can make decisions on your own if the university had given me an opportunity to grow and make some decisions on my own rather than running me by co- potentially running me by committee. So the, one of the very first things I learned and and I learned it with only Paula and Harry in in our closet was that, you know, I might want to make decisions on my own, but good leaders don't tell people what to do. What good leaders do is they establish a moral code and the goals and a framework in which they're in which they're setting boundaries for others. A framework in which they other people can make decisions. And the best thing a leader can do is to allow somebody else to grow and use their talents within that framework. And that is exactly what a good leader will do. And I I created and I'll, I'll go over this a little later, but I, I created a number of questions I would always ask myself because it's so easy to lose track of being a good leader because it's you get to a point often when you kind of forget uh, the qualities of being a good leader and it, you start telling people what to do again, which is exactly what leaders can't do. So I, I think, and, and I said earlier, I said, uh, you read in books you read books on leadership and obviously it says in there that all good leaders are set goals and they have visions you know and that 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 is very commonly said about almost any book you read on leadership what i found which kind of backs up what i said about letting other people grow that are working with you is that you got to understand what you're good at and what you're not good at and you've got to hire people uh, to to co- cover those things that you're not especially good at, so that the framework and the organization, the the employees, all kind of collectively provide a you know a strong organization. And so I, I I never see that written anywhere. But I think understanding for a leader to understand what he's strong at and what he's weak at, and being able to not Follow the the path of 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 trying to do everything himself. And as I said before, in order to be a good leader, you got to communicate. I mean, I, if they don't, if they can't understand what I'm trying to say, if they can't understand my vision, if I can't say it well, if they can't understand my goals. Then then I'm not a good leader. Um, and as I said, you have to respect others. You have to hire good people. You simply are teaching them as a leader. And you pay them well, and then let them alone to do their job.
0: Okay. Fabulous. It's interesting. We often say when we're talking about feedback that there are three things to do when somebody tells you about a weakness or a development need. Um, One is ignore it because you just decide, uh, you may think that, but I don't. It's an option. Two is try to change, try to fix the weakness. And three is staff against it, meaning hire somebody who's going to cover that thing that you don't do so well. Okay. All three legitimate places to deal with it. I find that fascinating. The other thing I find fascinating in what you say is this notion that you set the moral code, which is going to define as it did with your company, the handshake, the set, the honesty, the truth, um, uh, That represents the culture of the company. And that you define uh, boundaries. Because I often believe that what we do as a leader is we set the boundary conditions in which other people operate. And that's the most important piece. What are we not going to do? What are we going to do? Where are we trying to head? Not how we're going to do it well what are the boundary conditions for what we're going to do
2: yeah and that it's so important because look at look at all the examples we read about constantly in the newspaper about a company going off the rails and doing one thing or employees doing something like that something else and it's just an example of a leader not setting the boundaries and setting you know a moral standard within the organization I mean you you go where you're led to go and 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 and, and it's that simple. It's not. It's nothing else to it, other than other than people will do what you let them do, and they will follow you. And so, I, you know, that's. I mean, that's one of my biggest issues. I just, you know. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about communication. Um, we all know it's critically important. We all know that if you're not communicating, people don't understand you. They can't see what you're trying to do. They misinterpret you. We know it's important. But in your experience, are there particular qualities about communication that become more important than others?
2: Right. It's a, that's a really tricky issue. It's not just saying something well. Uh, there comes a, Communication comes with a, a factor of empathy with it. The, I, as, I would, as I would make mistakes on leadership, and I would sit and contemplate what I was doing, and I would look at the reaction of employees to what I said and how I was doing things. Over the years, I set up a, a series of questions that I would ask myself to kind of keep myself on the right track, and um, the first question I asked myself was, um, do I try to be aware of how others think and feel? Am I sympathetic to what I'm saying and how people are reacting to it? Uh, do I help people perform to the best of their abilities? Is that is that what I'm trying to do as a leader? Uh, am, I, am I willing to accept myself responsibility for what I do? That is, that's important for any leader to be the one that ultimately is responsible for anything within the organization. Am I willing to try new ideas that other people may bring to me or that I come up with and new ways of doing things that, that I may be resistant to initially? Uh, am I able to communicate, as you said, effectively with people paying attention to these things? Am I And am I going to be a good problem solver for them? Am I going to give them some ideas on how to solve a problem? And do I accept and appreciate... The other perspectives and opinions that people bring to me, so I think communication. You, I found myself asking these questions every time I communicated with something to make sure that I was on the right path. That I, you know that I wasn't getting, I wasn't losing control of the organization because people weren't following me. Leadership is not just telling people what to do; it's inherently letting people follow you because they want to follow you, and and if people and to get people to want to follow you they have to like you they have to know you care about them and and so i i just think you know it, it's just not it's not being a general or it's not getting up there and giving orders it, it's it's being sympathetic and empathetic to to the people that that are within your organization
0: uh, We talk so much about EQ and the importance of EQ, but I can't give a better description than what you just gave. So I want to repeat the questions. I think I've gotten them down correctly, that you ask yourself as a leader, um, am I being aware of how others are thinking and feeling? Am I creating an environment where others can perform to the best of their ability? Am I accepting responsibility for what I do? Am I allowing others to try new ideas? And in the context of that, am I communicating effectively? Am I being a problem solver for them? And am I listening to the opinions they bring me? And the final thing you said is that people follow you because they like you and they know you care.
2: Right. And they trust you. You know, you're putting their career, their life, their livelihood their future in your hands. And so you want them, you want, obviously you want them to like you, but you want them to respect you. And and the only way you get that respect in your life in, in return is, is if they know they care about you. I represented a football coach. I remember in 1985, I represented a football coach that you all may not know. His name is Lou Holtz, who was a football coach at Notre Dame. And, uh I wanted to represent him and he told no. He told me no and he told all the other agencies no, he was gonna do it on his own. And then two months later he sends me a, a a letter back saying, you know, that I changed my mind. My my inbox of speech requests is much higher than my football box and so I can't control I can't concentrate on football if I'm paying attention to speeches, you handle it. And he says I'll do it on one condition, as long as I can trust you. And it came in 1985 when we were having it, starting to have some success, and I could easily have gotten off the rails. It was like you know I was to the point where well, well I'm touching I'm feeling success I'm touching success and so I'm not going to let anything get in my way. And it's that idea you know that you know that you have to set you can't lose track of that moral responsibility that that tone you set with employees and within the organization because it's so easy to do it and so he said in his letter I will go with you as long as I can trust you and that letter sat on my desk for months not because I was paying attention to it because for some reason in my head I couldn't get it off the the desk and I finally came to realize why it sat there is because you got to be really careful because you, as a leader, can't get off the wrong track. I mean, Yogi Berra said, who was was a foot catcher for the New York Yankees in New York, said, you know, when I get to a fork in the road, I take it. Well, that's what we often do. But good leaders may go down the wrong fork in the road, but at the same time what they do is they correct themselves, and they come back and and, and they learn from going down that wrong road. And so that's what he was that's what he was teaching me.
0: That is fabulous. And Bernie, I just get the sense that through everybody, as you said at the beginning, you have just learned so much from all of the people that you've interacted with. I think the thing that strikes me is how open you are to receiving the lessons and understanding the defining moments, again, just as that letter from Lou Holtz was a defining moment. So with me today, again, is Bernie Swan, uh, Swan who's a uh, The executive director or the CEO, I guess I should say, of the Washington Speakers Bureau and the book is What Made Me Who I Am. Bernie, I think the most important thing for me as somebody who does a development and coaching of leaders is to get people to pay attention to the defining moments because those are what define our character. They're what set the moral tone and they're what identify the leadership and the quality we're going to be as leaders. So thank you very much for being with us.
2: Thank you very much, too. I appreciate it.
0: It's been fabulous. All right, and join us next week. We're going to continue this theme to talk about communication. In particular, how do you answer questions and how do you interrupt to get the message back on track? Join us
2: then.
1: Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.